ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's dusk on the Cocos Islands, one of Australia's most remote territories. And local Kylie James and I are powering through thigh-deep water in a milky-looking lagoon. Much smaller, hey? Hey, buddy. There, languishing in the shallows, is a huge green turtle. He's skinny and starving and can't muster the energy to catch the tide out to find food. Uh, so this in here on high tides, there's a lot of water in here and you'd get a lot of um, turtles coming through here. Um, but, and they usually would go out on the high tide. Uh, but now, obviously, they're getting in here and they're getting kind of stuck in here because they don't have the energy in that uh, to get away. So and they're staying here and dying. As the light fades on the small Carl Atoll, which is 3,000 k's from Perth in WA, the low tide reveals there are many, many turtles, maybe hundreds as the eyes can see, in a similar state. It's quite distressing. The thing about this lagoon is it sits at the end of a two kilometre long runway. And that runway is pivotal to plans by the Australian Defence Force for its military surveillance of the Sunda and Lombok Strait that sits to the north. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide. When Dr Scott Whiting first came to the Cocos Islands in the 90s, he was astounded by the health of its sea life. Cocos is the lesser-known islands of Australia's Indian Ocean Territory. And it's hardly surprising the azure waters of the Coral Atoll are a secret holiday spot for avid windsurfers and divers from all over the world. Now, most Australians are more aware of Christmas Island, mainly because of the media attention surrounding its detention centre, or the famous nature docos by David Attenborough about the annual migration of red crabs each year. These crabs are all females and of a kind that occurs only on Christmas Island. As darkness falls, more and more of them appear, clambering resolutely down to the sea. The famous voice of David Attenborough there talking about Christmas Island. But for a turtle expert like Dr Whiting, the attraction of Cocos Islands is the teeming population of hawksbill and green turtles. He first visited there in the 90s. Yeah, so there's green turtles and hawksbill turtles out there in in amazing numbers. So they're residents on the island, uh, all around in the waters on the island. So they rely on the seagrass beds, the green turtles in particular, because they're herbivorous, and the hawksbill turtles uh, rely on a lot of the food that lives within the seagrass. And the numbers were amazing, uh, thousands and thousands of turtles. They were growing very well, uh, growing very fast. They were fat turtles uh, and probably some of the fastest growing turtles anywhere that I've seen uh, in my working career. So at that stage, do you think, my, my goodness, this is incredible, I've not seen anything like this before? Yeah, so it, it's a, definitely a very important part of uh, the Indian Ocean system. So these turtles are residing on Cocos. Um, we had to work out where they were nesting because they don't necessarily always nest where they live. So tell me how they're connected to turtles that have been born in Ningaloo, Malaysia. Yeah. Yeah. How's that all interconnected? How does the web work? 
So the, the green turtles that reside on Cocos seem to be related to uh, beaches that are east of them. So Australia, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, that's where the genetics tells us those turtles were born and some of the, the, the tag data indicates that as well. But for the hawksbill turtles that live at Cocos, they seem to be related or linked to, to rookeries or nesting beaches in Africa. So right across the Indian Ocean. So those turtles are born uh, in Eastern Africa and residing at Cocos. That's incredible. So how, um, so how important are they as a population of turtles then? So Cocos is quite small in, in geographic scale. So it was high, high density of turtles, large numbers of turtles for a little, little spot. But all of the areas around the Indian Ocean are important and this is one of them. Uh, you know, what impact any decline at Cocos has on the, the bigger populations probably is yet to be seen. But now this population of both hawksbill and green turtles is struggling. Both are listed as vulnerable in Australia under the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act of 1999. Australia's defence has big plans for Cocos. Its location closer to Jakarta than Perth could allow Australia and its allies to send spy planes up for a bird's eye view on busy international shipping lanes. Troy Lee Brown is a defence expert based at the University of Western Australia. Um, monitoring those straits, you can see particularly Chinese submarines, but um, all sorts of ships and crafts and submarines. But um, they're, they're the places you pick up where those things are. Uh, if you're ever going to find them, that's where you pick them up, um, through those sort of shallow, narrow transit areas. Troy Lee Brown from the University of Western Australia. As part of the COCUS plans, Defence has earmarked building a new jetty to facilitate the hundreds of thousands of tonnes of asphalt and construction material required for a half-billion-dollar runway. And that has got locals worried. Because locals like Kylie James believe works for a previous jetty was a key trigger that caused the death of the island's seagrass meadows, the main food source for the vulnerable green and hawksbill turtles. When the um, Rumour Baru project or the jetty, the new jetty was built um, back in uh, 2009, the project was supposed to go for nine months. It went for two years. And um, as a result of that, um, with the dredging and stuff, it appears that it's undermined the seagrass. And so then we've had big swells and big weather events that have then um, torn up what seagrass was there. And so now, you know, obviously we're seeing the impacts of that um, throughout the lagoon. And particularly, I guess, the, the most obvious sign of that is with the turtles um, dying and starving. Local tour operator Kylie James, who moved permanently to the atoll in the early 2000s and eventually set up a turtle tourism business with her husband Ash. Now most days you can find her in the marine park showing people around the Coral Atoll and its sea life from motorised canoes. Cocos resident and high school student Isaiah has also noticed the changes to the environment, particularly when he's out fishing with his granddad. The loss of seagrass which has impacted the population of fish because back then we could fish from like from the sandbags on home one now fish there, we hardly catch anything. So have you had to find new spots to fish? Yeah, mostly now we go fishing by boat, so it's not a worry for me. But just the loss of seagrass, it's just, yeah. 15-year-old Isaiah chatting to me on Cocos Islands. 
Marine scientist Kendra Thomas-Trevea is the managing director of Sea Country Solutions, a small consultancy that is working on many projects on Cocos, including a seagrass restoration project. So weavers came in 2021 to actually listen and hear from the community what their concerns were about the marine environment. Um, and make sure that those voices were considered as part of the marine park development discussions. Um, And in particular, when we went, um, our approach is to ask what changes they're seeing, if there's any concerns. And one of the main concerns we heard across the board um, was the loss of seagrass. Um, And in particular, within the Cocos Malay community, they were seeing the impacts of that loss on a lot of the fish species that they like to catch. Um, So fishing is a really integral part of their culture. Um, So they had started to notice that some of the species they regularly fish and catch, and then some of the culturally important species like gonggong that are really associated with seagrass habitat, um, they were starting to see less of them. Marine scientist Kendra Thomas-Trevea. Now, on its website, Defence says it plans to start construction of the half-billion-dollar upgrade to the runway in 2024. But as yet, there is no environmental impact study done for that work. Now, Australia-wide checked with the two federal regulators that look after COCUS, that's Parks Australia and the Department of Climate Change, Energy and the Environment and Water, and they confirmed they have not yet received a referral from the Department of Defence on the airstrip upgrade. We also checked with the Office of Defence Minister Richard Miles to find out whether it planned to refer its plans to the regulator. Mr Miles' office provided a statement but did not address specific questions. Australia-wide has been told the Department of Defence can apply to Mr Miles for what's called a national interest exemption, but that is yet to happen. Now, this lack of action so far on environmental matters worries marine scientists such as Dr. Thomas Trevea and Dr. Whiting. We believe a lot of the initial decline was actually related to development around the jetty that's there right now. Building that, you know, the environmental impacts of that, again, you're going to see potentially more dredging. Um, You're going to see more equipment coming in and out of the lagoon, more vessel traffic within the lagoon, which is also stirring up sediment. And that is what we saw from the previous study, what kind of kick-started this initial decline. Um, so there's real concerns from a current environmental standpoint, what those impacts will be around the lagoon um, on the existing ecosystem, which is already stressed. Marine scientist Dr. Kendra thomas Trevea. Just recently, Dr. Scott Whiting was awarded a Churchill Fellowship for his work on the turtles of the Indian Ocean. And he plans to continue his work in that. He says it's not just the turtle ecosystem of Cocos that is of concern. So those turtles that you see in the lagoon, uh, many of them are skinny. You know, they've got, if you look at the males, the tail, you can see the bones in the tail. The scales are starting to peel off their, their backs. Uh, these turtles are not doing well. And for them to breed and, and be functional turtle in the system, they'll have to put on quite a lot of fat and they'll do these long distance migrations. So green turtles may only do that every four years anyway. It may be another seven, ten years before they they can get enough fat on to make that migration. And one of the unique things about Cocos is it's so isolated. These things happen in in nature anyway. The cyclones and and the flooding events in Queensland, there are uh, sick turtles and starving turtles there. But they have the option of going along the coast and finding other places. The Gulf of Carpentaria, the same thing, happens uh, periodically. The turtles move around 
many hundreds of kilometres to find another spot. For Cocos, it's very isolated. It's a thousand kilometres from anywhere and you've got to know which way you're going. And it is really difficult for those turtles to, to find those other seagrass spots. Dr Scott Whiting. And if you want to read more about this story or see pictures of what's happening on Cocos Island, head to Australia Wide's website. There's stories there and there's also a video for you to have a look at. You're listening to Australia Wide. I didn't know Melbourne much. I knew where the race courses were. I'm making signs for the sleepy lizards. Basically less eggs this year than what we would have expected. The houses that are near the edge of the bush, they might encounter a snake up to four times a year, a death adder. Um, just, yeah, see how it goes. On ABC Radio. We've just heard about a planned defence project on Cocos Island off the coast of Western Australia. But now we're going to head to Queensland, where hundreds of troops will be shifted to Townsville as part of a restructure of the army in what's being called a defence shake-up. The 400 to 500 extra servicemen and women will add to the 4,000 already based there, making it Australia's army capital. And rising tensions are among one of the reasons the Australian Defence Force has decided to focus on its own backyard. Lily Nothing joins us from Townsville now. Now, Lily, where did this decision come from? It's in response to the Defence Strategic Review, which was released earlier this year, and that has found that the Defence Force was no longer fit for purpose given growing tensions in the Indo-Pacific. So the review really outlined the need to strengthen Australia's northern army bases and transform the service for future littoral operations. So essentially, the idea of positioning the army for amphibious operations in Australia's immediate region, pivoting away from land wars, for example, in the Middle East to to a situation where you know, we we could be fighting against an adversary like China. So as part of, I suppose, the biggest part of this um, overhaul, we'll see two Adelaide-based combat units disbanded. So about 800 army personnel will march out of Adelaide and be posted to uh, other combat brigades in Townsville, Brisbane and Darwin from 2025. And the majority of those, up to 500 of them, will end up here in North Queensland. So tell me about the strategic landscape of Townsville. Why Townsville? Well, as I mentioned, there there is that need to strengthen Australia's northern bases and, and Townsville obviously being a, a you know, the biggest garrison city in Australia is is uniquely positioned to, I guess, hold more resources and um and and be in the right place at the right time. Uh, but you know, as as part of this change, Townsville's third brigade will be reformed as the army's only heavy heavy combat formation so we'll be home to the entire fleet of armored vehicles um, so all of the tanks and infantry fighting vehicles will be based here in Townsville in the coming years as well as about half of the army's fleet of aviation capabilities so the new Apache attack helicopters will be based here from 2025 and they'll join the current fleet of Chinook helicopters. It's a big change then for Townsville. Is it a welcome move when it comes to the people of Townsville? Yeah, well, speaking with Townsville's mayor today, Jenny Hill, she has welcomed the move and and says it it will mean good things for the local economy, uh, for for local businesses. But 
the real sticking point here is where are all these people going to live? And, you know, we're not just adding 500-odd soldiers to Townsville, but it's all of their partners and their families, and that will inevitably put more pressure on housing up here where where we already have a really tight housing market. And then, of course, there are flow-on effects to people being able to find work, people being able to find childcare and schools and those sorts of things. So it's it's not um it's not a, always a smooth transition and there are lots of questions being raised by the mayor about what it'll mean for housing in the region but you know our our local um tourism and economic body Townsville Enterprise they've really welcomed it and said that the population boost should contribute in excess of 800 million dollars in economic output each year for the region. So Lily is there any critics at all of it? Yeah, well, well, we have heard today from Andrew Hastie, who says that the idea of moving uh, all of the army's assets to the north, essentially, or, 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 or most of them, um, does create recruitment and retention issues because these people being moved out of Adelaide, where they have established homes and families, um, to now being you know, pushed up to Townsville, um, he anticipates that could that could mean people leaving the force, which of course the army doesn't want to see when when um, retention is already such an issue at the moment. And then of course there are those questions around housing uh, that that will certainly persist in you know in future years as we see more and more troops moving up here. So they're saying four to five hundred um, personnel moving to Townsville. Will there be immediate action on that, or will personnel finish their current postings and then shift up to Townsville? Yeah, they will finish their current postings. So it isn't it isn't a tomorrow thing. We will have some time before um, before troops come up here. So the the first of the movement that we'll see will be from twenty twenty five that that posting year, the start of the year. And then um, my understanding is that it'll happen over the next two to three posting cycles. So it will be a period of you know four, five, six years that we see uh, the the troops move up here. But certainly um, by the end of it, seeing you know maybe five hundred extra personnel here will will be a big change for Townsville. And Lily, you said a posting cycle. What is that for people who haven't lived in a garrison city? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. So um, generally, you know, people operate on two-year posting cycles. So you get your notice and you're... you're um, you you set up in a in a city for for at least two years, and then you know potentially you'll have that posting extended, uh, or be posted back to the same city, or you'll be posted elsewhere. So the idea of posting around the country isn't new for for defence members nor their families, but I think um, you know there will be some questions raised for these people who are established in Adelaide about having to move up, you know, to Brisbane, to to Darwin, to Townsville, especially up here in the north when the heat is, it um, can be uh, some to grapple with that, mm. um, yeah, for some people it, it probably won't be a welcome move for some of those families. <laughs> so if I understand rightly, Lily, so you're saying much of the machinery and heavy armour of the Australian Defence Force will be in Townsville. How do people who are outside of that world feel about that in terms of, you know, the spotlight being on Townsville? Well, I think it's important to note that basically as a result of these changes, there'll be uh, three sort of operational combat brigades and each of them have slightly different purposes. So the third brigade, which is the one based in Townsville, will be the armoured combat combat brigade but we'll have um you know another brigade in darwin is a, is a light combat brigade which m- makes them more agile and, and easily deployable and then the brigade in brisbane is a, is a motorized combat brigade so certainly um 
you know, there are other aspects of the army that aren't all just, um, you know, big tanks and infantry fighting vehicles, but it does mean that a lot of the attention will be on Townsville in terms of uh, resources and assets. Well, thanks very much for bringing us up to date on it on Australia-wide. Lily Nothling in Townsville, thanks a million. Thank you. The Voice to Parliament referendum. How will you vote? For everything you need to know to make your decision, the ABC has you covered. From the latest news and analysis. To videos and podcasts. Like the Referendum Explained podcast on the ABC Listen app. And more information you can trust on ABC News Digital. Everything you need to know before you vote on October 14 in the Voice to Parliament referendum. Go to news.abc.net.au. ABC Australia Wide. We want them to get up and say they've done us wrong and drop that levy. You let them get away with this, what else are they doing in that council? On ABC Radio. It's a rare thing for a child to ask for carrot and zucchini fritters for their special birthday lunch. It's usually more donuts or cake. But when fresh veggies are a rarity in remote community households, the delightful crunch and flavour and the rainbow colour of veggies means kids can get genuinely excited. La Trobe University is running a five-week programme in conjunction with Boab Health and Margellan Kimberley Centre at Notre Dame to teach remote community kids about healthy eating, how to make tasty snacks, anything from rice paper rolls to green smoothies. Our reporter, Hannah Murphy, has this story from Warman, a community that sits on the edge of the Northern Territory and West Australian border. Getting kids to eat their vegetables is tough at the best of times. Now, imagine trying in a remote community. What's next? With a smoothie. What's this one say? Yeah, do you want to help? Milk. Milk. And so here's the milk. This is a local school in Warman, a community that sits on the edge of the Northern Territory and West Australian border. Some children here have never tasted a cucumber before. The last of the spinach. We are going to taste it. The Trobe University dietetic students, Paige and Ruby, are here to change that. We came here through Marjolin um, and then we're also through um, Boab Health Services as well. Um, and we're doing a five-week placement here, just like trying to... Nutrition Australia does this thing for, like, try for five, which was for veggies, and we're here trying to do that in primary, primary schools. It's part of an initiative that aims to teach kids about eating healthy and getting proper nutrition. Into that one, yep. Yep. The whole thing in there. Getting fresh fruit and vegetables out here can be next to impossible for a number of reasons. A recent federal inquiry into food pricing and food security in remote Indigenous communities found it's not only expensive to eat healthy, sometimes it isn't even an option. Being a bit remote, they don't have as much exposure to the fruits and vegetables that we do in Melbourne. We see them all the time, every day. So it's nice to bring some new things into communities for people to try and experience. When ex-tropical cyclone Ellie hit the Kimberley early this year, fresh food had to be flown in in special temperature-controlled planes. So when the La Trobe students teach, they have a lot they need to keep in mind. Exposing the kids to different vegetables, and like even today, just like never had spinach or avocado. Um, we had a student yesterday, and he wanted these like carrot and zucchini fritters for his birthday one day. So it was just like really special. What is it? Sweet? Yeah, sweet. Yeah. That is sweet. Oh, yum. 
They talk about what's readily available to the kids. So we're not talking about beef or chicken. The protein food group in their lessons cover goanna and kangaroo tail, and the fruits they focus on are mangoes and bananas, in abundance in WA's tropical north. been loving the, the yeah. green smoothie. <laughs> They've been enjoying making green moustaches with yeah. their <laughs> with their smoothie on their lips. Guys, tell me, what was in the smoothie? What was in it? Spinach, milk, avocado, mango and banana. The initiative is running across different remote communities in the Kimberley and it's already a hit. And what do you guys think it tastes like? Delicious. Oh. Dietics students Paige and Ruby from La Trobe University and some very happy kids, obviously. And thanks to Hannah Murphy for that story from Warman, which is a community that sits on the edge of the Northern Territory and WA border. Now, that is Australia wide for this Thursday. Remember, if you want to read more about the stories that you've heard, why not hit up the Australia wide website? I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. Listen.